Um, in college, I had a, a very good friend named Kyle. And Kyle and I, we lived in the dorm for three years together. Uh, we had a lot of things in common. Uh, we came from the same hometown. Uh, we, we shared some common interests. We were both converted as uh, young teenagers. And uh, both of us went to seminary and uh, our pastors. Our friendship was, over the years in college, marked by a lot of fun memories. But one memory in particular sticks out like a sore thumb. And unfortunately, this memory is not a, not a fun one. It's not a good one. During our sophomore year, year in college, I received this call from, from Kyle uh, in the middle of Christmas vacation. And uh, he was just in the middle of tremendous pain in his head and in his neck. And he was going to have to miss the annual Christmas conference that our campus ministry was putting on. And so he's really disappointed, he's really bummed about missing this conference. And, and medicine didn't touch the pain in his head and in his neck. And this began a, uh, a three-year season in Kyle's life. A three-year season in Kyle's life where he visited countless doctors, where he underwent a barrage of tests, where he tried lots and lots of different kinds of medicine and nothing worked. The doctors had no clue what was going on for three years. I remember coming back from class one day and and seeing Kyle on, on our couch in our room just weeping to another friend because he didn't know what to do with his pain. Nobody knew what to say to Kyle. We had lots of conversations during this time uh, and as a young man of God, of course, this really challenged Kyle. And in those conversations as we, we would talk, he would ask lots of questions. Questions like, where was God in this pain? Was there going to be any relief? Suffering is the one common and perpetual experience of humanity. Everybody suffers. People across history, people across culture suffer. It could look like loss, pain, heartache, disappointment. Everybody suffers. It can look like mental illness. It can look like chronic pain. It can look like the devastation that comes from a hurricane. It can look like relational betrayal or the persecution that may come for your faith. It can look like the death of a loved one. It can look like bombs going off in our city. We all suffer. And when we suffer, what we want, what we really want, what we desperately want is firm ground underneath us in order to survive. And the world doesn't offer firm ground. The world does not offer firm ground. What the world offers is good sentiments. The world offers redirection and escape. The world offers false hope in humanity. But we don't want band-aids. We don't want temporary relief. We want something permanent that's going to get us through what we're going through. What we want is a new world, a new world without any suffering. We want new bodies that have no chance of chronic pain or disease. We want new hearts. We want perfect relationships. This is what we want. So the question for us this morning, the question that I want us to wrestle through as we look at the passage that we're going to look at this morning is this. Does Christianity offer firm ground for suffering people? 
Does the Christian gospel promise that everything sad will come untrue? So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. It's found in your pew Bibles, page 1118. Some would consider this chapter the greatest chapter within the greatest letter ever written because of the hope it describes. And I would agree. Romans chapter 8, we're going to start reading in verse 18. Now, in a crowd like this, I would imagine there's several people here that are suffering, that are going through something difficult. And my prayer this morning is that God, through this passage, is going to give you a gigantic bear hug. And for those of you that aren't suffering right now, that are not going through something difficult, my prayer is that through this passage, he is going to put some significant theological ballast in your boats so that when you encounter the storms of life, you will be nice and steady. So let's read now, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we ask you for mercy now. We pray for mercy for the hurting person in this room. Father, we pray for mercy for all of us. We pray that you would prepare all of us for suffering which will inevitably come. Father, would you teach us? Would you comfort us? Would you exhort us? Would you bless your people this morning? As we look at this passage, give us wisdom and understanding and insight. And Father, would you love your people this morning? We pray in Christ's name, amen. What I want to do with this passage is I want to pull out three substantial truths for those who are suffering. Three substantial truths. There's a lot going on in this passage. We're not going to be able to to go over every jot and tittle, but three truths I want to pull out. And here's the first truth. Here's the first truth. It's found in verse 18. Incomparable glory is coming. Incomparable glory is coming. Let's look at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This passage doesn't just teach that uh, future glory is better than our present suffering. It teaches that, but what it teaches is that our suffering is essentially trivial is almost inconsequential when you compare it to future glory. Now, we may think, as you hear that, we may think Paul is incredibly callous and insensitive and totally out of touch with reality. 
But then we remember what Paul went through. Listen to these words. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I have been beaten with rods once I was stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren. Paul is speaking from personal experience. He's walked uh, different kinds of sufferings that we probably uh, will never experience in our lifetime. He has walked the gauntlet of suffering. So it may surprise us then to hear his words about trials and suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So for Paul, his own suffering, his own trials, as well as our own suffering, our trials, he would describe them as light, light. According to Paul, they are tissue paper problems. They're cotton ball trials. Light stuff, like chronic pain with no relief. Small trials, like never being married when you desperately want a companion. Like people not liking you because you're a Christian. Like losing your job. Like losing someone that you dearly care for far too early to death. Or battling cancer. Or battling through a difficult marriage. This is all light stuff to Paul. This is feathery stuff to Paul. You know, if Paul were here this morning, if Paul were here this morning and, it, and, and if he's engaged in a conversation with you and if you're suffering through something, I think he would pull you in close. And I think he would say with tremendous tenderness and compassion, the trials that you are going through, the trials that you are going through are only light and feathery when you compare them to the future glory that is guaranteed to come your way. Now notice at the end of verse 18, this glory, this glory, this future glory, it's going to be revealed in us. It's going to be revealed in us. It's not just that this glory is going to be revealed around us. It's not like we, you know, Jesus comes back and we, we, we're at the glory show. We're in the audience and, and there, there it is. There's a bunch of glory in the person of Christ. No, no. This is a glory that is going to capture us. This is a glory that's going to arrest us. This is a glory that's going to be bestowed upon us. This is a powerful glory. It's a full immersion glory. It's not like dangling your feet in the lake. No, no, no. It's, it's more like running off the dock, cannonballing into the water. Full immersion glory. That's what's going on here. Now, what is this future glory that's going to capture us and arrest us? Paul gives us a clue in Philippians chapter 3. Don't have to turn there, but listen to his words. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So we get new bodies in this glory thing. We get new bodies. Think about it. New bodies without diseases. 
New bodies without disabilities. New bodies with new abilities and new faculties to enjoy God, to enjoy Jesus. But this glory goes much further than just new bodies. It also includes what John saw in Revelation chapter 21. Do you remember these words? John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. So yes, we get new bodies. We get perfect new bodies. But we also get a new universe. And we get a a God, a, a new king who is going to reign with us in this new universe. This is what's coming our way. This is the future glory that is coming our way. Friends, do you believe that? Do you have this vision of future glory in front of you as you go into your weeks, as you go into and try to endure the trials that you are facing? Do you have this vision in front of you? We need this vision in order to survive. So this is the first truth. Incomparable glory is coming. Incomparable glory is coming. But if this glory is in our future, what do we do now? What does tomorrow look like? And this brings us to the second truth. I'm going to spend the most amount of time on the second truth, and we'll quickly wrap up with the third truth. Here's the second truth. It's found in verses 19 through 23. Now we wait and we groan for that glory. Now we wait and we groan for that glory. Let me read verses 19 through 23. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. So today is Mother's Day, and I I want to just briefly honor my mom. I want to honor her baking abilities. She is an expert baker. She makes some super yummy cakes. If you ever come to Michigan, come over to my house. We'll feed you some cakes. And she also makes homemade icing. So her, her cakes are just marvelous. Now, as a kid growing up in in, in her house, as she would make these cakes, my stomach would groan and grumble. You know, groans tell us something. Groans tell us something. There's frustration in the groan, right? There's frustration, there's longing in, in the groan, but there's also anticipation in the groan. Isn't it interesting that here Paul says that creation is groaning? Creation is groaning. Paul describes this in verse 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now the word here for eager expectation is a curious one. It literally means to stretch your neck or to crane your head towards something. Our seven-month-old daughter Emma uh, recently started doing this, this new thing where she, you know, if you're holding her... She will strain her neck and crane her neck to see uh, someone she knows behind you. you know, if you're holding her, she'll, she'll look behind you and she'll, she'll crane her head like that to see. It's super cute because you can tell she's really eager to see whoever this person is. In this passage, creation stretches its neck to see 
to see when God's children are going to be glorified. It's like creation is on tiptoe, waiting, groaning, longing. It's almost like in this passage you can see trees and, and, and plants and rocks and galaxies and planets, all of creation together waiting on tiptoe to see when the sons and daughters of God will be revealed in glory. But why is creation frustrated? Why is creation frustrated? Notice verse, verses 20 and 21. It teaches that creation is enslaved. So when Adam and Eve, when they sinned, first time in the garden, when they fell into sin, God cursed all of creation. God cursed all of creation. So now, according to verse 20, it's subjected to frustration, which means that it can't fulfill the purpose that it was created for. It's also in bondage to decay, according to verse 21, which means that it's enslaved to this corruption. It's caged. And it desperately wants to be free so that it can be itself. Creation is on tiptoe, waiting for God's children to be glorified so it can be freed from that cage. Now, three times this passage, verses 20 through 22, mentions the creation's frustration. Three times. Now, that's because there's something much bigger going on here. You see, suffering is not just my story. It's not just your story. Suffering is something much bigger. We are part of a groaning that the whole creation is experiencing. Therefore, suffering is a global issue. It's not just a personal issue. So when bombs went off in Boston recently, this is what we felt. Our city is suffering. We are suffering alongside our city. The whole country in some ways was grieving because of what occurred. Now, of course, the creation isn't the only one who groans after glory. Believers, too, are groaning and waiting for glory. Take a look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, I want to highlight to you an important phrase in the middle of this verse and then kind of work outside from that. And that's, that's right here. It says, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's kind of the heart of this verse. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Now, this is a complex and baffling thought. On one hand, Paul is saying that God's suffering children, they groan. They feel hurt. They feel loss. They feel devastation. They feel heartache. And that's okay. It's, very, it's a very real feeling, and it's okay for God's children to feel that. But on the other hand, God's children also wait with eagerness. God's children know there's something more coming their way. They are on tiptoe just like creation. As I was thinking about this passage, this verse in particular, verse 23, something kind of dawned on me. I realized that this particular verse gives Christians permission to lament. It gives us permission to say with the psalmist, just like we heard earlier in the service, how long, O Lord, will you tarry? How long will you allow this to happen? It gives us permission to weep. It gives us permission to mourn for ourselves and for those around us that are struggling. You know, of the 150 psalms, 
50 to 60 of them would be classified as lament psalms. One-third of the biblical hymnal expresses lament and groaning. You know, sometimes we think that it's unspiritual to groan. It means we're not really trusting God. It means we're not really believing God's promises. We're not really waiting on God. And yes, there is a kind of groaning that is void of trusting God. We all know that. But here, this this groaning we see here in verse 23 is different. It's the loud, honest cry of God. I can't do this anymore. I need you to step in and bring relief. Mingled with the quiet conviction that if he doesn't, it's going to be okay. It's found in the desperate prayer, God, I feel betrayed. I'm hurting. Comfort me. But I'll trust your goodness regardless of what happens. There is a distinctly Christian way to lament, a real groaning, but it's fused with real hope. Now, notice that this inner, inner phrase, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, it's modified by two statements on either side. Let me point it out to you. The first statement that modifies this idea. Not only so, but we ourselves, here's the first idea, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. So let's focus in on this, this first modifying phrase for just a minute here. On one hand, Paul says, Christians, church, you have the first fruits of the Spirit. You have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we've tasted, we've seen the goodness of Christ. Believers enjoy the benefits of the gospel, right? We have new life in Christ. We have a, a new joy in Christ, a new peace in Christ. We have this, this beautiful new family of God called the church. These are the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, when my mom was baking those marvelous cakes, two things would drive me crazy. One was the smells, you know, wafting through the kitchen, wafting through the house. Drive me crazy. And the other was my mom would often give me just a little morsel before dinner. She'd take the cake out of the oven and just to kind of hold me over, she'd give me just a little morsel and she'd think that that would kind of appease me. Unfortunately, it did the opposite. You see, those smells and that morsels, uh, they drove me crazy because they make my stomach grumble even more with anticipation, right? My brothers and sisters, God has given us spiritual smells and morsels as well. He has given us the first fruits of the Spirit, and they should drive us crazy with anticipation for the full meal that's coming our way. Now think of the few times where you have gotten a peek. By God's grace, you've gotten a little peek into the glory of Christ. Think of the, uh, the times when you've experienced powerful spiritual renewal. Can you think of those times? Maybe it was when you became a Christian. Maybe there was a time when, when you were in these very pews. You were listening to a sermon or you were singing a, a hymn with God's people. And you just sensed, you experienced the very real and powerful presence of God. You remember times like that? Maybe it was in the quiet moments of prayer and scripture reflection in your own home, in your own bedroom, it just left you in tears because you were experiencing the very real love of God. These are the first fruits of the Spirit. This is God making deposits in your life 
to point you towards future glory and to help you and sustain you as you suffer. We've got to cherish these moments, right? They're not our default setting. They don't happen all the time. But one day, one day, these wonderful moments of joy and worship and awe will be our default setting. They will be what we experience every day and in every moment. Now this brings us to the second modifying phrase there. Look at verse 23 again one more time. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, here it is, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, even though we've experienced new life in Christ, we are still waiting for more. Earlier in, in Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 15, Paul says, you're adopted. You, you are part of God's family. And here it says, though, yes, you've been adopted into God's family, but we haven't received all of the benefits. We're still waiting for more. In particular, he mentions our resurrection bodies. So we're still walking around with these bodies that grow older and weaker. You know, our bodies have chemical imbalances in our brains. Our muscles grow frail and, and sore. So on one hand, we have this new life in Christ. On the other hand, we don't have the fullness of that new life in Christ. So we live between two worlds. We straddle two ages. We've received the adoption papers, but we're still waiting to get picked up. We live in that already not yet tension that fills the pages of the New Testament. So what do we do? According to Paul, we groan inwardly and we wait eagerly. I want to give you two simple applications to take into your coming week that's kind of rooted in, the, in this passage. Very simple. Here's the first one. Enjoy the smells and morsels. Enjoy the spiritual smells and morsels. Don't forget how far Jesus has brought you. Don't forget all of the beautiful benefits and blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also, ask God for more. Ask God for more of himself. He is delighted to give you more of himself. Ask God for more joy in Christ. Ask God for more satisfaction in Christ. He wants to give you more of himself. When you meditate on these smells, when you meditate on these morsels, which are designed to give you a foretaste, it's going to help you get through the struggles and the suffering of today. That's the first application. Second application, help each other. Help each other to enjoy the smells and the morsels. What is your role when someone at this church is suffering? What is your role? What are you called to do? Are you more prone to step in and and lean towards them and care for them? Maybe you're nervous, you're scared, and so you step away from them. What is your role? What are you called to do? Well, listen. New Testament Christianity knows nothing of wholesale privacy. New Testament Christianity knows nothing of isolation or relational tidiness. There is an assumption in the New Testament, and the assumption is this is going to be messy. This is going to be messy. And so we are called as brothers and sisters to step into that mess and to love each other because people are suffering. We need each other, especially 
when you're suffering, so when we're suffering. So wrap your arms around one another. I'm sure you know people in this body that are hurting. And there's a specific strategy too. When you are there, when you're in the mess, help each other, remind each other of those spiritual smells and morsels. So three tr- or two truths we've seen so far. Incomparable glory is coming. Now we wait and we groan after that glory. And here's the third truth. It's found in verse 24. Verse 24, here it is. I'll give it to you at the, uh, at the outset. Our confidence ultimately rests in God's ability to sustain us. Our confidence ultimately rests in God's ability to sustain us. Look at verse 24, the first sentence. This is a powerful sentence. For in this hope, we were saved. For in this hope, we were saved. What hope is he talking about? He's talking about what we've been discussing this morning. He's talking about incomparable glory. For with this incomparable glory in mind, I saved you, says God. We could say it this way. Jesus died so that believers will get swept up into this incomparable glory. Now, do you hear a, a, a wonderful promise and encouragement that's underneath that idea, underneath that truth? Jesus didn't just die for your conversion. Jesus didn't just die for your spiritual growth. Jesus died to get you from the beginning of your life with him through the present struggles and sufferings of today and into the glory of tomorrow. That's why he died. That's what God had in view for his church when he saved them. So in this short sentence, God promises that if he began a good work in you, he will see it through. And seeing it through means glory for his church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So where do we get the strength to endure everything from run-of-the-mill inconveniences to chronic pain with no relief to, to enduring some maybe even more horrible, horrendous evils that this life brings us? We get it from believing this great promise in verse 24. We don't get it when we place our confidence in our own abilities to grit our teeth and bear it. We get it when we place our full confidence in this unshakable, irrevocable promise of God to get us through glory, to glory. Do you believe that? Is this a promise that you are trusting in? If this is part of your functional theology, your daily theology, your weekly theology, well, friends, you can endure whatever this world brings your way. So three truths. Incomparable glory is coming. Now we wait and we groan for that glory. But it's ultimately God who will get us to that glory. We began our time together with the question, does Christianity offer firm ground for those who are suffering? Real lasting hope. I believe it does. In the middle of Fyodor Dostoevsky's famous novel, um, The Brothers K, two brothers begin this fascinating conversation about God's existence and the reality of suffering. And one brother, in the middle of that conversation, turns to his other uh, brother and says this, I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, 
that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity. By God's grace, he has guaranteed glory for his church. So let's together wait for it with eagerness and patience. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you this morning and when we suffer so often we complain and we doubt you and we pity ourselves and we acknowledge that you have called your church to suffer in this present life to wait to persevere to hope and father we praise you that you have provided for our need you have forgiven us you are so gentle with us you have promised us future glory you've given us foretastes You've blessed us with a wonderful church family. And today, Father, we rest, we rest in this great promise that you are going to sustain us, that you are going to get, get us through. So, Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would continue to bestow your love upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen.